I'd like you to imagine for a moment walking into the office tomorrow or to school or talking to your neighbor out in the street and seeing a coworker, seeing a boss, maybe uh, somebody who works under you, maybe your neighbor out to get the mail, seeing this person just beaming with joy. Whereas the Friday before you, you saw them, they, they were just looked like they had the weight of the world on their shoulders, totally depressed, looking worn out. But now it's Monday morning and they look refreshed. They're excited that it's Monday somehow. And you notice their exuberance. And in your curiosity, you strike up a conversation with this now refreshed, revitalized looking person. And you say to them, oh, you look rather happy today. Last, last Friday, you, frankly, you looked miserable. No offense, but terrible. Yeah, they say, I had an awesome weekend. So now you want to know what's their secret. What, what did you do? Did you go up to the lake? No, no, no. Did you take the family out of town? No, not that either. You and your wife have a nice date somewhere? No, not that. Watch the game and take a nap? Like, no, no. Well, for goodness sakes, man, I hope you didn't meet another woman. I hope that's not why you're looking refreshed. Goodness, no, goodness, no. I'm running out of ideas. What, for goodness sake, uh, could it be that, that made you to be in such a happy state on this of all days, a Monday, after looking like the world was resting on your shoulders, crushing you under its weight on Friday? Friend, what happened? And the response to you, friend, I confess my sin to God and I've been forgiven. That's why my Monday is so great today. That's why, I, that's why I look a different man, a new person. Not because I went to the lake or went out of town. Not because my wife and I went on a nice date. Not because I got to watch my favorite sports team play. No, none of that. I'm refreshed. I'm renewed. I'm full of life and gladness and vigor today because I confessed my sin to God and I've been forgiven. That's an unlikely answer to the question, why do you look so good on Monday? And yet I might say that this is precisely the answer that the psalmist gives to us in Psalm 32. Where is their refreshment? Where is their gladness? Where is their joy to be found when the world is resting on our shoulders? It is to be found in confessing sin to God and being forgiven by Him. As we're working our way through several different psalms uh, this summer, we come to Psalm 32 to look at, at, at how this psalm speaks to seasons of our life where, where perhaps we have much sin that we are convicted of and need to confess it. Where we have the weight of the world resting on our shoulders, a, a, a backlog of guilt building up in our minds. What do we do? Where is their joy? Where is their hope? Where is their refreshing for our souls in times like this burdened by our sin? The psalmist in Psalm 32 tells us. Here's the main idea of our time together this morning in God's Word. And the main, the main idea of Psalm 32, that it is a blessed joy to confess sin and be forgiven by God. This is a reality we need to, to come into contact with and embrace and understand today. It is a blessed joy to confess sin and be forgiven by God. So in light of this, friends, and I'm going to prepare you for how we will respond to God's Word this morning. As we see this fleshed out for us in this wonderful, beautiful psalm, let us then now prepare, and, and as, our services, uh, as our service comes to an end later, let us then confess our sin to God. 
who forgives so that we can rejoice in being made righteous in him. It is a blessed joy to confess sin and be forgiven by God. Would you stand with me as we honor the Lord by reading his word, Psalm 32. Psalm 32, a mascal of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is a man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer, Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with the bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. It is a blessed joy to confess sin and be forgiven by God, dear friends. We should be ready to do that. We should be ready to receive the refreshing, the reinvigoration, the revival that comes with confessing our sin to God. The psalmist knows this reality and he sings about this reality to us this morning. And this psalm, I I find, is broken down into four different movements. And those different movements are sort of signified by that, that Hebrew word that you see in the psalm, Selah. Often we don't read that word out loud when we're reading the psalms out loud, but we did today. It's there in the original Hebrew text. That word Selah is just as inspired as uh, by the Holy Spirit as all the other words in this psalm. It's a word that we don't really understand how to translate well. That's why in many of our Bibles it just appears there in its Hebrew form, transliterated into English letters, Selah. It means something like, well, some scholars think it's it's perhaps musical direction, like a change in key in the song. If you're reading out of the New Living Translation, you'll probably see that word is translated as interlude. Perhaps it's a, a, a time of a musical interlude where there is no singing, but there is music playing that uh, leads or calls the, the congregation to reflect on what they have just sung. Either way, there's some sort of break, some sort of shift around these words, uh, this word Selah in the psalm. And I find that the psalm before us, Psalm 32, follows a particular kind of movement, an organization around these breaks. So what about the first movement? The first movement comes to us in verses 1 through 4, where the psalmist tells us, David tells us, forgiveness of sin is a blessing. Don't miss that. This is really the the heart of the psalm, the point of the psalm, right there at the beginning of it. Forgiveness of sin is a blessing. Twice the psalmist says, blessed is the one, blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, uh, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. 
This word blessed uh, there at the, the head of, uh, of a verse may remind you of the first words that Jesus spoke in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the, those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Blessed are the peacemakers, on and on. That word blessed is a word that means happy. It means joyous. That's what it means to be blessed, to be filled with gladness at your deepest heart level. Why is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered? Why is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit? Why is that person blessed? Why are they joyful? Why are they happy? They are blessed because sin is exhausting and heavy and defiling. When exhausting, heavy, defiling things are lifted from a person, there is nothing but gladness and rejoicing to come. Verses 3 and 4 of the psalm describe the effects of sin. We see that sin is physically exhausting. So when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. When we sit quietly without ever confessing the wrongdoings or the, the impure thoughts and motives of our heart, when we keep those things secret, when we try to cover them up, it's like wasting away from the inside out. I was groaning all day long, the psalmist says. When we hold on to sin, when we hold on to uh, our knowledge of transgression against God without confessing it to Him, without bringing it to Him, we groan inside. Sin is not just physically exhausting, it's emotionally taxing. We find also that in time of unconfessed sin, God's discipline is pressing. Your hand was heavy upon me. It is in every way entirely draining. The psalmist says in verse 4, My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. There's a funny way that the psalmist says this uh, second half of, of verse 4, My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. You may have a little footnote there, a little number one or something. It's a number one in my Bible. You look down at the bottom of the page to see what the footnote says the he, it says in the hebrew it, it's translated literally my vitality was changed it's a hard phrase to translate to summarize as i was working through this this week that the word that is translated as strength or vitality is in other places translated as moisture or even friends juice my juice was dried up by the summer heat when I held on to my sin and didn't confess it, I had no juice, the psalmist says. I'm taking a little bit of liberty with translation, but there you get the idea. We're getting into peach season. I like peach season because I like making cobbler. Someone said amen. And uh, we had some, I don't know where my wife got them, but we had some really good peaches the other day. I'm not a good peach buyer because I went and bought some peaches and they were not the same peaches that my wife bought. But she bought those free stone peaches, you know, one of the ones that they just, like, they just peel apart and the, and the pit in the middle just falls out and you take a bite into that peach and it's just dripping all over your beard. <laughs> and you let it dry and crust over there as a flavor saver for later in the day. Like, what's, what's wrong with this guy? The juice of delicious summer fruit and how, how, how just, oh, it's just a symbol of life and oh, everything good and sweet is all gone when we hold on to sin. It's worse than dried apricots. 
That's not in my notes. I had no juice. My strength was dried up. I had nothing. It was all gone. Confessing sin is a blessing because when we hold on to it, whether it's a sin as deep and grievous as murder or as seemingly light as a passing lustful thought, when we hold on to those things and don't bring them to the Lord, when we hold on to those transgressions, those sins, more than just mistakes, these are intentional departures from God's design for our life. When we hold on to those things, it takes everything from us. Forgiveness of sin is a blessing because sin is exhausting and heavy and defiling but it is a blessing to be forgiven because it is a weight sin is a weight that only god can lift in light of the weight of sin the joy of forgiveness by god is all the more wonderful here see see how the psalmist describes it at the beginning of of psalm 32 blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven that word forgiven comes from the hebrew word for to lift whose whose transgressions are taken off of him Friend, have you ever been walking silently in sin and just literally felt like the weight of the world was on your shoulders? Like you were being pressed down into your shoes and into the floor like you couldn't even lift your feet, much less your soul, because the sin that you're hiding onto is crushing you underneath it. The guilt that you feel is just heavier by the day. Blessed is the man whose transgression is lifted, whose sin is covered. This this picture of covering over sin is not, is not a picture of hiding sin. It's not a picture of leaving sin on the shoulders of the sinner and just covering over it so that they're walking around like some sort of sin-filled quasimodo through life. Like I've got this burden of, of sin on my back, but no big deal, it's covered up. No one can see it, right? We often try to cover our own sin through lying, through deceiving others, through putting on a pretty face. But God sees all. Forgiveness of sin is a, is a lifting of sin. Blessed is the man. Happy is the one whose transgression is taken off his back. Who, who carries it no longer. And no longer is it lifted, but it is, it is covered up and covered away that no one may see it again. Not left in place and covered over, but taken away completely and removed. Blessed is the one who knows that kind of freedom from sin. And so we have the the heart of the psalm right at the beginning. It's a blessing to take all of our faults, all of our failings, every wrongdoing and and ungodly motive and, and thought of our hearts, to take it before God, to give it to Him and say, God, I can't lift this. I can't hide this. Everything I do to try to take care of it just makes it heavier, makes it uglier, makes it worse. Lord, you deal with it. You take it from me. Blessed is the man who is relieved from the weight of sin. No longer wasting away, emotionally exhausted. No longer under the hand of God's discipline, but now lifted by the hand of God's grace. No longer dried up as by the heat of summer, but now full of juice and life and vitality again. We learn in verse 5 that it's not just blessed to be, it's not just good, it's just bring about happiness to be forgiven because we've confessed sin, but that confessing sin doesn't happen by accident. The psalmist notes for us that that this state of blessedness, this state of uh, of joy happens on purpose. 
Because confessing sin doesn't happen in the background. Confessing sin requires decisive action. I think that verse 5 is the the decisive and, and personal center of this psalm. This is what the psalmist does when he sees his sin, when he feels the weight of it, when when he sees and reflects upon the unique ability of only God to lift his sin, to lift his guilt. What does he do? He confesses it. Look at verse 5. In light of all that the psalmist knows about the blessing that comes with forgiveness of sin, he tells us and he leads us to sing and to do as well what he did. I acknowledged my sin to you. And I did not cover my iniquity. It's interesting. Blessed is the man whose sin is covered. But the psalmist says, I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Decisive action. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. There are four aspects to confessing sin. Friend, if you want to know the gladness, the joy, the happiness that comes with being forgiven of your sin, having your sin lifted off of your shoulders, covered over, taken away, four things the psalmist leads you to do. Number one, acknowledge it. Acknowledge your sin. Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3 says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Paul the Apostle summarizes this same same thought in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Here's this consistent reality before us all throughout Scripture that, friends, you and I as human beings made in the image of God to know, love, and worship Him, we have all taken God's rightfully deserved glory and either given it to ourselves or given it to other people. We have taken God's design for life and livelihood and we have perverted it, we have bent it, we have turned it askew. We have sought to live life our own way on our own terms. Proverbs says there is a way that seems right in the heart of man, but in the end it leads to death. And friends, that is a proverb about all of us. All of us have sought to live life according to our own terms. And in the end, what does it get us? Death, corruption, the weight of sin on our shoulders with an omniscient, all-seeing God who observes it. The first step in knowing the joy that comes with forgiveness of sins, friends, is to acknowledge you are a sinner and that you have sins. It's often said in, in recovery groups that the first step to overcoming an addiction is to recognize you have a problem. Friends, we all have a problem, myself included. We all have a sin problem. We all have a sin addiction that needs to be acknowledged. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian and seminary teacher and professor and pastor, said this in a book that he wrote for his seminary students called Life Together. He says, you can hide nothing from God. The mask you wear before men will do you no good before him. He wants to see you as you are, and he wants to be gracious to you. You don't have to go on, you do not have to go on lying to yourself and your brothers as if you were without sin. You can dare to be a sinner. Acknowledging our sin means we have to dare to be a sinner. Dare to acknowledge that we have moral debts against God that cause us to fall short of his glory, that, that, that break our relationship and fellowship with him. Friend, confessing sin requires decisive action, beginning with 
acknowledging that you are a sinner and that you have sins. And then it moves to, second, uncovering it. Acknowledge your sin and then uncover it. I acknowledged my sin to you, the psalmist says, and I did not cover my iniquity. I did not cover my guilt. I didn't try to paper over the mess in the living room. I brought it all out into the light. Confessing sin, uncovering sin, means in part not just recognizing that we are sinners and that we have sins, but that we uncover all those sins. Removing every excuse, removing every minimization, taking full responsibility. Not saying, oh God, you made me do it. Or, oh, the devil made me do it. But saying, I did this. I did this. I chose to deny or defy your glory. I chose to linger on that thought. I chose to go to that website. I chose to take that money. I did it. Uncovering our sin or not covering our sin means removing every excuse and minimization and sometimes, friends, peeling back the layers of sin involved. Sometimes one sinful action has many sins attached to it. For example, speaking mostly maybe to to men in our church, we know the pernicious hold that pornography has on men in the world and in the church today. We know that it does. We know that it's there. We are beleaguered by it. But looking at pornography as these, sex, uh, at these sexually explicit images of other women, other people, in itself is sinful, but friends, there are all sorts of other sins attached to it. Not just looking at images that you shouldn't look at, not just that the, the sin of lust, but also the sin of degrading the godliness and the godly image that is borne by those on whose images we're looking at? By wasting time in our sanctification where we could be following Christ, could be growing in the Lord, instead we spend that time, time that we can't get back, time that only God can redeem, but spending time, wasting time on frivolous, sinful things, sins of disrespecting our wives or our husbands or our children by pursuing these things. When we uncover our sin, we don't just uncover the one sinful act, but friends, we have to peel back the layers to see all of the various sins that may be involved in this one action, all of the sinful directions of our heart in one moment's time. The psalmist does not hide any of it. I did not cover my guilt. I peeled back layer after layer after layer to say, God, not just sinful in this way, but sinful in this way. And in this way, I'm not hiding anything from you, God. It's all here for you to see. You see it anyway, so it's best that I do and that I show it to you willingly. Confessing sin requires decisive action of acknowledging that you have sin, uncovering it, peeling back the layers of it, and then third, confessing it to God. Verse 5, I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, to Yahweh, the God who is. It is not just, confession is not just a mental exercise of acknowledging that sometimes you sin. It's not just a mental exercise of, of checking off all the ways that you have sinned, but it is a heartfelt exercise of faith to take all that you know about your own sin and your own guilt and to hold it with an empty hand before God and say, God, here's all of it. Here's all of it. I'm guilty of all of it. All of this is mine. I own it. Now you see it. Here, God, are all my sins. Here are all the ways that I am guilty. I am intentionally reckoning 
my sin to you. Here it is, God. I'm not holding anything back. I'm not, I'm not just walking through this stuff, this mental exercise in my own mind to help me, help me feel better at the end of it. No, God, I'm saying it to you. The only just judge who sees all and knows all and you know all that I'm guilty of, I'm standing before you in your court and pleading guilty. Guilty. We acknowledge sin, we uncover it, we confess it to God, but there's a fourth step, friend. And it's not the fourth step that you might expect of do better, try harder, work more, be a better version of yourself. The fourth step of confessing sin, acknowledging it, uncovering it, confessing it. Fourth, rest in God's grace. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You forgave the guilt of my trespass. Forgiveness, friends, is an interesting thing. And I don't think we quite understand it very well from a human level. Forgiveness is not merely overlooking a fault. Like when my kids forget to clean the rooms when I ask them to and I just don't say anything about it later. Forgiveness is more than just overlooking a sin. It's more than just overlooking a mistake. Forgiveness is the act of absorbing offense without retribution. Forgiveness is the act of absorbing offense without retribution. When we sin against God, we are offending Him. Not because He's easily offendable. Not because He's he's some sort of emotional lightweight. But we are offending God because he is holy. He is perfect. He is good in every way. He is completely righteous and without fault or blame in any respect. And when we step outside of his perfect and good and holy and life-giving design for us, we are saying, God, I don't need you. Only in much worse terms. It's like giving a big middle finger to God when we sin. If I can be crass. We are offending God and forgiveness is taking that offense and not giving retribution in return. Not giving to the sinner what they deserve. Forgiveness is not, it's not winking at sin and pretending like it didn't happen. It is recognizing this is offensive and I have been offended, insulted, harmed, and I'm going to deal with it myself. I'm not going to hold that against the one that has sinned against me. Forgiveness is not injustice. It's not merely winking at sin. We don't want God to wink at sin. We don't want him to wink at big sins, the likes of Hitler and Stalin and Pol Pot and all of those terrible characters of history. And we don't want him to wink at small sins, like a little little white lie told at work to save graces or punching out on your clock a little bit early, but changing the time to add those five minutes back onto the end of the hour so you can get every penny that you think you're owed. We don't want God to merely wink at sin. We want God to be just towards sin. The punishment for sin, though, the weight of its guilt, as we consider God's forgiveness, the the punishment for sin, the weight of sin's guilt does not go undealt with when God forgives sin. All of it, the punishment of sin, the weight of its guilt is carried by God himself. He absorbs the offense in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. God does, not, God does not turn a blind eye to your sinfulness when you say, 
God, I'm a sinner. I need your grace. I need your forgiveness. He doesn't say, oh, it's okay, son. Don't worry about it this time. It's okay, daughter. Not a big deal. Try harder tomorrow. That's not what God says. God says, I hear your confession. And I take, I impute, I give all of your guilt to my perfect, sinless son on the cross. And that sin will be paid for. Justice will be dealt. But not to you, dear child. But to my son, to myself. How is it that God forgives our sin and remains righteous by not overlooking sin? I, this is, a, this is a, a divine reality that is somewhat mysterious to us. But John in his first letter, 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, says this to his readers, to the church. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. I don't want you to walk in sin, but... If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. We've got a defense attorney. We've got someone on our side, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. What does John mean when he says Jesus is propitiation for our sin? What he means is that Jesus is the one who pays the penalty, pays the sentence for our sins. He doesn't pay it partially. He doesn't get time off for good behavior. He doesn't get a lighter form of of God's righteous wrath against our sin because he's perfect. No, God pours out all of it on Christ. He takes all of it for us. That's what it means that Jesus is our propitiation. He's our substitute. He's our advocate. He's not just the one who stands in our defense in the court of God's justice, but he's also the one that takes the penalty that is due to guilty sinners. When you look to Jesus... And trust Him as your propitiation. Confessing all your sin to God. Acknowledging all of it. Uncovering all of it. Confessing all of it. Lashing yourself to Jesus as your advocate and substitute friend. You can rest in the kindness of God's unending forgiveness. That is what the psalmist is leading us to sing. No wonder there's a Selah at the end of verse 5. If ever there's a point for reflection, a point for shouting out in praise, it's here. I acknowledged my sin. I didn't cover it up. I confessed all of it to the Lord. And you forgave me. Are there any Christians here today? You forgave me. Me. You forgave the iniquity of my sin. When I, when I put myself, when I attach that pronoun, my, that possessive pronoun to Stephen, goodness gracious, how much is there to be grateful for? Friends, if I unloaded the backlog and the history of sin in my life, of all that the Lord has forgiven me of, you would likely be disgusted by the man that stands before you. And my guess is, friends, you look at your own heart very much the same way. You know the weight of sin. You, you, you know the defilement that sin brings. You, you, you know the crushing power of unconfessed sin over you. And if you know Christ, you know the great freedom and lifting and joy that comes with knowing that all of that has not only been lifted from you, but covered, open, covered over and taken away by Christ when he died for your sins and was raised from the dead. There is blessing for the one who confesses his sin. And we see that con- confession, is it requires decisive action. You've got to do something about it. It doesn't happen by accident. But the last step in confession is resting. 
resting in God's provision for your sin. And so the psalmist goes on after exalting and all that the Lord has done for him. He now moves to, to speak kind of from a position of wisdom, a position of experience. And in verses 6 and 7, we have the third movement of this psalm, which is a call to confess. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. What verse 6 tells us, friends, is this, that there is not always tomorrow. Verse 6 is a call to every person who reads this psalm, who sings this psalm, to confess their sins to this gracious God today. Today. Let them offer prayer to you, a prayer of confession, at a time when you may be found. Yesterday is gone. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. Friend, if you're aware of your sin and its weight and its burden, confess it today. The Lord is listening. The call to cry out in a timely manner is urgent here because Tomorrow may be the day of judgment for you, for me. The second part of this verse speaks of the floodwaters of judgment coming upon the unjust and not being unable to reach the godly. Surely in the rush of great waters, the flood of God's judgment, those waves will not reach the one who is called out to the Lord. I hope you see as I do a reference to an allusion to Genesis chapter 6 and that great flood in Noah's day here in verse 6. There in Genesis chapter 6, we find that it did not take long after the creation of the world for the indescribable evils of the human heart to afflict the earth in such a way that God was so deeply sorrowed, so deeply grieved over the sinfulness of the world that he destroyed nearly every living being, all humanity with a torrential flood that covered even the mountain peaks. There was though in that flood one man with his wife, with his children and their wives, saved. That one man, Noah. One righteous man. That word righteous does not mean sinless, but righteous means upright. It means straight. It means properly directed, if you will. Peter says about Noah in 2 Peter 2, verse 5, he says, God did not spare the ancient world, but he preserved Noah, who was himself a herald of righteousness, a model of uprightness before God, along with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Peter in his, the apostle Peter in his lifetime saw Noah as one like the psalmist who is calling for people to repent of sin in light of coming judgment. There was Noah building that ark for years while people watched him and laughed at him and said, you're an idiot. It hasn't rained in a long time. Noah says, yeah, but the Lord told me to. Something's coming. His life of obedience to the Lord was a proclamation to the rest of the world to turn, to repent, to confess their sin because judgment was coming. To the one who calls out to the Lord in a day when he may be found, when the floodwaters of judgment come, friend, they shall not reach him. The psalmist says in verse 7 that he that the Lord is a refuge to those who repent, to those who confess their sin. You're a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. See, the flip side of this urgency to confess sin in light of coming judgment, to confess sin while there is time, is that the Lord is a hiding place. He's a refuge for those who do confess and do repent. 
He is himself that great ark that carries his people safely through the floodwaters of his own judgment. Just as Noah was hidden safe and carried through the flood of God's judgment in the ark, friends, in a better way, an infinitely better way, the Lord himself is a refuge, a hiding place, an ark of safety from his own wrath to those who call on him. Again, the Apostle Peter in his first letter, 1 Peter 3, verse 18, he says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Here's the call of Psalm 32 in verses 6 and 7. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. You can't do anything about the past. What you have is today. Confess your sins to the Lord. Be carried safe through the waters of his judgment in the ark that is his son, Jesus Christ. call to confession then shifts in the last four verses, 8 through 11 of this psalm, to speak about the wisdom of repentance, the wisdom of confessing sin to God and turning from it, repenting from it, to follow after him in holiness. I will instruct you, says the psalmist. I'll teach you in the way you should go. I'll counsel you with my eye upon you. Don't be like a horse or a mule without understanding which must be curbed with bit and bridle or not stay with you. Don't ignore the wisdom that I'm saying to you here. Don't be stubborn. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. Steadfast love, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord. Rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. The psalmist implores those who sing and read the psalm with him to, first of all, heed the call to joy. There's wisdom in heeding the call to joy by confessing sin and repenting today. If you see the wisdom in this, if you see the joy in this, then confess your sin and repent, says the psalmist. These final verses could be in the, in the voice of God, as some scholars have understood. Sometimes in Hebrew poetry, the voice changes, just as like it does in, in English poetry or poetry in any other language. Sometimes it's a particular narrator. Sometimes it's another character. Some see these final verses as, a, as instruction from God himself. Or it could be in the voice of David, the psalmist, who himself knows from experience the joy of confessing sin. You think about David's life, king of Israel, all that hot mess that was his life. Either way, the call in verses 8 and 9 is clear. It is wise to acknowledge your rebellion and your transgression to God. I love the picture in verse 8 of a helper in repentance. Whether that helper is the Lord or that helper is another experienced believer, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. This is not a wise man or God, depending on who's speaking these words, but that is merely shouting commands from a position of power with no regard for those he is instructing. No, this is a picture of one who comes alongside the sinner, who is who's coming to confess his sin so as to say, Come with me. Come with me on the path to life. I'm not just going to tell you that you need to repent. I am going to help you to do it. I'm going to walk with you, cry to God with you, hold your hand and put my arm under yours to help you in times of trouble and weakness. Confessing sin is so necessary for joy and relationship with God that I'm going to give myself to help you know this joy. That's the picture of verse 8. I'm with you. So all that in mind, don't go on stubbornly like a horse or a mule that can't be reasoned with. I don't know about you, but I've never had a particularly uh, sub, sub, substantive conversation with a horse or a mule. 
Rather, hear the wisdom of God's call to bring your sins to Him so that He can cleanse you. Hear this wisdom. Heed this wisdom. Do it. Try me in this. Confess your sin. Lean upon Christ. See if He does not lift your burden and restore your vitality. Give you your juice back. Heed the call to joy, the psalmist says. Then rejoice in the love of the Lord who forgives. This is how the psalm ends, verses 10 and 11. How might you expect a song of confession of sin to end? Perhaps in a minor key? Maybe on a down note? Perhaps with a phrase about the personal worminess and unworthiness of the one who is confessing? This is what Satan would have us to think about confessing sin. And the world too, for that matter. That confessing sin is all somberness and never celebratory. That it's not life-giving to uncover your sin before God. Instead, just hold on to it. That confessing sin, the world and Satan would have us to, to believe confessing sin is all doldrums and never delight. It's always hard work. It's more burdensome than it is freeing. That sin is somehow supposed to make you happy and being done with sin would somehow make you sad. Don't confess it. That's what Satan and the world would say, but see the very opposite of this sentiment in this psalm. The world and Satan may have us to believe that it is shameful to admit your mistakes, that it is shameful to recognize that what feels good to our hearts is often grievous to God's heart, but not this psalmist. He knows that the Disney way to life of following your own heart leads to suffering and, under the, um, um, and, and leads to living life under the unbearable moral load of sin. But when we come with all of our moral debts against a holy God and acknowledge them, confess them, uncover them in His presence, trust Him for mercy, we find that there is there to meet us the God who said of Himself that He is the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Verse 10, steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. The Hebrew word that is translated steadfast love is one of my favorite words, and it's every first-year Hebrew student in seminary's favorite word because you can't say it without spitting. Now we're in the day of COVID, so I'm not going to ask you to say it with me, but it's the Hebrew word, I'm going to clear things out. You guys are in the splash zone, sorry. It's the Hebrew word chesed. I would invite you to say it with me, but, but your, your neighbors in front of you will appreciate that I'm not. Chesed. Chesed is an incredibly difficult Hebrew word to translate because it means so much. It's so theologically rich and deep. It's not just a fun word to say, but it's a fun word to know. It's a reality about the character of God that is exciting and encouraging to know. This word, chesed, means something like covenant loyalty, merciful kindness, faithful and persistent love, all bound up in one thing. This is what the Lord, who hears our confession and receives our repentance, surrounds us with. The Lord who knows all your sins, when he hears them confessed from your lips, envelops you in his 
covenant loyalty wraps you up in his merciful kindness, drops you in the middle of a bubble of his faithful and persistent love. This is what God does to those who confess their sins and repent. And this is why the psalmist sees it as such a joyful thing. It's good to unbear unload all of the things that I've been trying to carry on my own, all of the sin that I've been trying to carry myself before God, because when I do, there is nothing but his loving acceptance for me in Christ. Again, Paul the Apostle says in Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love for us, and that while we were still sinners, think of all that that word sinners implies about you. When you were a sinner, Christ died for us. That's how God shows his love. That's how God demonstrates his love, by sending his son to die for people like us. Is there any more lovely demonstration of grace to the undeserving? Friends, is there any more merciful action to perform for the guilty? Is there any, anything more simultaneously humbling and exalting to know than that the one who sees all and who knows all and who is the ultimate object of our every sin has absorbed our offense, punished his son in our place, and by our repentance and trust in the risen Lord Jesus, made us his sons and daughters. Is there anything else in all the world that is worth celebrating? Is there anything else in all the cosmos that can bring us greater joy, blessing, gladness, than to know that God has done this for us. And to know that God holds wide His arms to all who would recognize their sin and trust His Son for their redemption. That that God is standing there to call everyone, respond this way. So friends, what response is there then? To God and to this grace that He shows then to confess our sins and to rejoice, to walk in the blessing, to walk in the gladness of bearing our sin before God and saying, I fall on your grace, shown to me at Christ on the cross. There are two types of people who cannot have the joy, the happiness, the blessing that the psalmist talks about, sings about in verses 1 and 2. Two kinds of people that cannot have the joy that is here for us in Psalm 32. On the one hand, the person who thinks they have no sin to confess that person will never know the joy that the psalmist sings of because they've not recognized, they've not even admitted, maybe even to themselves, that they have offended a holy, omniscient, all-seeing, all-knowing God. They cannot have the kind of blessing that the psalmist sings of. The other kind is the kind who thinks that God could never forgive the sins that they carry. The kind who knows the weight of their sin and who knows the holiness of God and says and believes the lie That God could never forgive a sinner like me. Today, friend, hear the call and the promise of God's word and be a third kind of sinner. Be the one who sees his sin, but is unafraid to lay it before God with hope and trust in Christ to be forgiven and to be blessed. The call of response from the psalm today is this. Confess your sins to God today. 
Trust Christ, who is your refuge. Rejoice in the blessing that forgiveness brings. That's the call of this psalm. And that's how all of us are led to respond to God's word today, to confess our sins, to lean upon Christ, and to rejoice in the gladness that we have of being forgiven by God. And so, friends, that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to respond to God's word as as it leads us to respond. So in a moment, I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to enter into a time of, of, of kind of quiet response where we are. And in your response, friends, I, I want you to take advantage of this and confess your sins to God today. Maybe the sins of the last week. And I'm not talking to just people who are not yet Christians. I'm talking to you, Christian. You have yet sins that need confessing, acknowledging, uncovering before God. Bring them to Him. And and with all of the ugliness of your sin, also lean upon Jesus, your refuge. Look again to the cross. Trust Him afresh and anew. And then after a time, friends, we're all going to rejoice together in the blessing that we have of forgiveness. So in this time of response, as I conclude in a short prayer, I invite you to come and and if you'd like to to put feet to the, the movement of your heart, you'd like to come kneel at these steps, to make your confession to God, not to me, but to God. There's nothing magical about these steps, but sometimes it helps to just get on our knees, humble ourselves bodily so that we can do it mentally and and affectionately as well. Perhaps you need to bow at your seat. Maybe you need to stand in prayer. Maybe you need to pray with your husband or your wife or with your children about sins that you know you are holding on to. I don't know how you need to respond this morning in confessing sin, but we all have it. Let's take this time to respond appropriately. Friend, if you're here this morning, you're not yet a follower of Jesus and you want this blessing. You want the joy. You want this gladness that comes with having sins forgiven. Friend, no. Today can be the day of salvation and redemption and forgiveness for you. Friend, if you need to trust Christ as your Lord, confess your sin to Him and trust Him for the first time today, do that in this time of response. I'll be down at the Front, I'll just be sitting here at the front. If you need counsel or prayer for anything, come, please visit with me. Let us confess our sins that we may trust Christ and rejoice in the blessing of forgiveness. Let's pray together and then we'll respond together.